of what it is we are focusing on when we say this Advent season. And so I need to give, I want to give a little bit of a brief history. And to do that, I need to go back a little bit to the early church. Uh, when Christianity was first being established, Christ had risen from the dead, the apostles were going out and preaching, the church was growing in droves, and the early church leaders, they really started to focus on, on three different main events. The birth of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ, and the resurrection of Christ. And finding dates for remembrance of the crucifixion and resurrection, that was really easy. It was, after, it was during Passover, so they could do that. They could do that with ease. But finding a day to honor and remember the birth of Christ, that took a little bit more effort because nobody believes that Jesus was actually born on December 25th. But as the early church fathers, as, as in the leaders of the church started to consider how do we celebrate and honor this momentous occasion, they considered Jesus is coming into the world as the light of the world. So let's honor that at the darkest moment of the world. And at that time, it was the winter solstice around December 25th. So December 25th, the darkest night of the year, became the night where the greatest light of the world entered into the world and when we honored it. And it had the added advantage at the time of being a Roman holiday as well. So it was easy to have the pomp and circumstance around it. So now we have these milestone dates available. Good Friday, Easter, and December, the winter solstice where we remember the entry of the light of the world into the world during the darkest point of, its world, uh, of the world. So the time and days leading up to each of those events became a uh, momentous occasion as well. This, this is going to be a time of preparation. So for Easter, that time is called Lent. And for Christmas, that time is called Advent. And that's what we're talking about, is Advent. And so the word Advent comes from the Latin. I hope, I hope this doesn't sound too, like, schoolish. If it does, I apologize. I'm almost done with this. But the, the word Advent is actually from the Latin Adventus, which is the translation of the Greek. The Greek word is parousia. And parousia is, uh, I mentioned this because Advent was traditionally established because it had a dual focus. Similarly to the Greek word parousia having a oftentimes dual meaning. One of the meanings for the word parousia was to uh, focus on or announce the coming of Christ initially, his incarnation, coming in as a baby. And it was also used to explain or announce uh, the coming, the second coming of Christ into this world. So Advent was intended and is intended to be a time to focus on the first parousia, which is Christ coming in the manger, and a time to focus on the future parousia, which is Christ returning to earth. So this context and this background that I'm giving you around Advent is so that you hopefully will get a little bit of insight as to what we as the pastors at the Church of the Beloved wanted to do when we selected the different themes that we did for this Advent season. You know, the idea of sharing God's generous gift to our family and our friends, to those who are strangers and in need, to our community as a whole. We wanted to celebrate our Savior's birth and anticipate his return in the season of Advent because we know 
that it points us as Christians not just to the birth of Christ, but it points us to everything that's happened since then. Parousia, or Advent, is intended to point us to the understanding that we're now in this time, in this season between the resurrection of Christ and the return of Christ. So, that's what Advent is about. That's why we focus on these generous gifts. So as we consider this, what are we supposed to be doing now? In this time between the resurrection and the return, how are we supposed to live our lives? This is what we want to focus on today. And I want to do that by first starting off in 1 John chapter 2, verse 28 to 29. And we will eventually get to the passage that Peter read to us today. But to give a little bit more background and give you a fuller picture, I want to start with 1 John chapter 2, verse 28 to 29. Uh, and in 1 John uh, chapter 2, verse 28, it says this, And now, little children, he uses the term little children because he's trying to emphasize how much he adores the reader in this situation. So he says, and now little children, abide in him, speaking of Jesus, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his parousia, at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of now, um, my wife, Suzette, and I, we are, we are very, very different in so many ways. Uh, we are the embodiment, I think, in many, way, op, uh, many ways that opposites do really attract. Um, now, one of, the, one of the areas where our differences are probably the most evident is in how we wait for each other. So I used to travel a lot for, uh, for work many years ago. And Suzette would have this tendency of um, waiting until the very last moment, maybe like an hour before I was supposed to get back home before trying to straighten up the house. Because uh, we like to have, you know, we, we love each other and we want to have a clean-ish home for each other. But I actually, uh, there was one time where she had... It, was, it wasn't that I was gone an extra long period of time. It's just something happened where basically every single dish, pot, and pan in our home was used and started to pile up in the sink, onto the countertops, and beyond. And the only reason I knew that this happened is because she was so amazed by it that she took a picture of it and sent it to me as I was on my way home. Because she was like, wow, this is bad. That's, that's her style uh, of awaiting my return. Mine is a, a little bit different. I, I have a tendency to, uh, to keep our home in a state of constant readiness for her ultimate return. In other words, I'm just a clean freak, and I just like to have everything in order, and I, folks who have ever been to our house kind of see this. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that my way happens to be more biblical or holier, it kind of is, but uh, ultimately, what we, what, we, what we see in John is that we don't know when Jesus is coming back. We don't know the day. We don't know the hour. And so he's telling us to live in this period of time between his resurrection and his return ready. 
we need to have our heart home ready for him. And in verse 29, he points out what readiness for Christ's return looks like. He says, if you know he is righteous, if you know that God is righteous, then all those who are righteous are of God. See, the children of God are called to live righteous lives during this time between the resurrection and the return, and we need to strive for that. We need to to be ready to receive him once again so that we will not shrink in shame. I think, I think it's important, though, uh, to, to clarify something. You know, the, it says here the children of God, and, and you might ask, who are the children of God? Or you might not, because it seems like such an obvious question. Who are the children of God? But I think it's worth clarifying because there are many who believe that everybody is a child of God, which is a beautiful thought. But I want to read to you 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 to 3. It says this, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Here's the thing, the children of God does not include everybody. Even saying it out loud, it, 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 it makes me sad but it does not include everyone in the world. The world does not recognize. It's hard to swallow, but there are those in this world who do not know or recognize the children of God or know God the Father because he is not their father. It's only those who see and believe and follow Jesus, God the Son. Only those, only these are the ones who are purified by Christ. In the Gospel of John, written by the same author as 1 John, but in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 12 to 13, he wrote this, but to all who did receive him, speaking of Jesus, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to be called the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. See, this call to, to wait righteously in this time between the resurrection and the return is specifically to the children of God. So if you are one that is allowing the gospel to, to transform you into a, into a spirit-filled disciple, if, if you know that you are the beloved of God because of Christ alone, this is a call out to you. If you're not you are more than welcome to, to live and to strive to live a righteous life as defined by the Bible. And I know many people who are doing that. But I hope you understand that this righteousness that you live out is one that will be based on your own power and your own ability rather than on the power of God 
through the Holy Spirit, as Jesus promised to those who are counted, who recognize God's call to be redeemed. If you, here's a, if, if you want to be counted among the children of God, and I hope today as you're hear the, hearing this, if you are not one who is, if you want to be the beloved of God because of Christ alone, I want to ask you right now not to hesitate in making that decision. Don't delay it. Because if you, pro, if you know, if you get that the way to eternity is with God, is through the acceptance of God's generous gift for you, don't delay. Consider it today. So, coming back to the topics, in this time of Advent, during the season of Advent, we are waiting. We are waiting for Jesus' parousia, for his coming. The children of God during this time are called to be righteous, which is an extremely broad statement that could be interpreted to mean anything at all. So I want to go deeper into 1 John to understand what that might mean, what righteous living might look like for each and every one of us right here today. And in 1 John chapter 3, looking at verses 7 to 11, John reminds everyone that either they are a child of God or a child of the devil. It's an either or, it's a binary situation. And the distinction between the, the two really can be evidenced and recognized by what we do. Let me read verse 7. It says this, Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he or God is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that, that we should love one another. See, the internal transformation by the Holy Spirit is going to be evidenced by external application. Now, I, I'm not saying that salvation is, or, or redemption is dependent on actions. What I am saying is this, and what John is saying is this, actions cannot be divorced from our salvation. You see, to be a child of God, you need to be, it, it must be evidenced by what we do, not just what we say. Um, my wife and I moved to Chicago last uh, September slash November. She came a little bit later than me. And since attending Church of the Beloved in Wicker Park, we've tried our best to try to get to know as many of you as possible. And uh, uh, in that process, you know, first being uh, an attendee, then becoming a member, then becoming the campus pastor here, in the time, I, I don't think I've necessarily proclaimed it publicly or aloud that I happen to have a passion for a specific movie series. 
but uh, I think many of you have been able to witness, it's become fairly evident, and if you can't see from the distance, you can see right here, it uh, says, never mind. Uh, it's, it's, it's evident that I have a love for a particular movie series. Uh, and I will confess to you, there's um, about over five years ago, an announcement was made. And when that announcement was made that Star Wars, that's the movie series, by the way, if Star Wars was being re rebooted. And I remember reading the different movies that were being considered for that release uh, of the reboot and, and, and thinking and praying, actually, very specifically. I, and I remember this very specifically, praying, God, I am so excited about your coming, your return from glory, but could you please wait until December 21st, 2019? Because I would really like to see all these new Star Wars movies before I go back to heaven. Um, and if he does not return before December 20th, God answers prayer. Uh, if he does, I'm sure he had a better plan. Ultimately, um, I think many of you have been able to see that I do have, uh, I, I like Star Wars. And, I, and you see it not because I proclaim it only, because I actually have evidence of it in my life and in my home, uh, in what I do, what I say. And I bring this up because here's the thing. The things you're passionate for, who you are in your character, these are evidenced by people around us. They're witnessed by people who see us day to day. Because you cannot divorce the words that explain your character from the actions that display your passions. A child of God is identified not only by what we say, but by what we do as well. I know it's pretty obvious, but one of the nicest ways, one of the most obvious ways where we can be recognized as children of God is by loving one another. There's, this, I, there's a story in Mark and some of the other Gospels as well that I love. It's Mark chapter 12. And, and, the, and this, te this religious leader comes up to Jesus and he says to Jesus, and he asks a question, he says, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And without hesitation, Jesus turns to him and says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. But then he didn't stop. He then said right after that, he could have stopped there, but right after that he goes, and you shall love your neighbor. What is the greatest commandment? He didn't stop with you shall love the Lord your God. He went on and said, there's two. Jesus Christ blatantly says that the two greatest, most important commandments that we need to consider as children of the Most High God is to love God and to love those created in His image. So as we anxiously await Jesus' parousia, His coming, His return, the children of God are called to be righteous and to be a righteous child of God is going to be evidenced not only by what we say but also by what we do. And one of the best ways to be righteous in your life as a child of God is to love those who God made in his own image. All of that was to lead us to today.
Lead us to that big blue wagon outside being filled with coats. Lead us to today's passage, verse 17 and 18. And in verse 17 and 18, John wrote, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Let a, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. John is... John is being so unbelievably practical in this passage. And John is also a very philosophical guy. If you read John chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was... It's very, very philosophical and deep and sometimes hard to understand. But here, black and white, really practical. He's saying... Listen, if you have the means to do it and someone is in need, help them. Since righteousness equals helping. And we, we, we chose to do this clothing drive because, you know what? In Chicago in the winter, you need coats. And we chose to do it with this school because we are here as part of this community. We chose to do it as part in partnership with this domestic violence shelter because these are individuals, women who are fleeing horrible situations who may have had to leave in such desperate times that they were not able to help those children that they love, their children. We chose to do it because if we have the means to do so, we want to help. Now, if you don't have the means to do this, that's okay. Like I said, John is being really practical because he starts off with this caveat. If, if you have the world's goods, help. Because John's not trying to tell people, listen, you need to become poor and destitute in the process of helping. If you look through the Bible, you know that we have a responsibility to, to our family, to our household. But if you have the means, help. And the thing is, though we may not all have the worldly goods to do that, we all have the spiritual opportunity to do something. And that opportunity includes a more substantial gift the first gift that we need to consider, which is why last week, before we even started this coat drive, we started with prayer. The Apostle Paul writes in his first letter to Timothy, chapter 2, verse 1, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all Prayer. prayer is a primary, is a legitimate, is a required means of that help that we need to offer to those in need. It's not something that we can minimize. But for those who have the means, he's being very blatant here. He's saying, help. We pray for those families, those moms in desperate situations who want to get their children cared and protected with coats. We want to do that if we have the means. We do that through prayer, and we do that practically through this coat drive. 
But it's not just about the act. The practical application of our call to be righteous children of God or, or the external or visible action itself, it cannot forget that there is an internal heart transformation, an internal submission on our part that ha- has to be considered. And you can see John making a reference to that in this passage in verse 17. John in verse 17 points out that we have a sinful and broken condition that we need to battle against. It's a continuous battle between our brokenness and the spirit-fueled gospel transformation that is trying to take our hearts in hand. In verse 17, John uses this phrase that says, yet closes his heart. And I want to read to you a passage from the Old Testament. It's Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 79, 79, which is what this phrase is referring to. And it says there, If among you one of your brothers should become poor, in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God has given you, you, should not, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. But you shall open your hand to him. Lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart. And you say, "Uh, the seventh year, the year of release is near. And your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother. And you give him nothing. You cry to the Lord against you. And you be guilty of sin. In Jewish culture, Seven years was a big deal. Every seven years, any Israelite who still owed money to another Israelite were released of that debt. It was the year of release. There's some details behind what that might look like in practical application, but it was the year of release. Jesus and God knew the hearts of men and he understood that there would be individuals who would think, oh, you know what? The year of release is just a couple months away. If I lend the money, I'm never going to see that money again. So I'm just going to say no. I'm not going to have it. And the basis thoughts clouds the heart of everyone, even Christians. The the darkness of the human condition will oftentimes allow one to to explain away why helping, I can't do it right now. The mind goes to a place where it tries to divorce surrendering oneself from loving others. It sees the material as the thing to hold on to versus the the spiritual. And so John is trying to remind and explain that that clinging to what I have is a focus on me while letting go of what I have for those who do not have is clinging to God instead. And it's not just about the act in and of itself. It's an understanding that the Spirit is the one that transforms us, me, into one who, as the beloved of God because of Christ alone, am called to love those around me who are in need. It is is that my heart is transformed by the Spirit 
because of my love for Christ, and I, and I want to give the generous gift that God has given to me, to those around me, even the stranger. Verses 19 and 20. It says this, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. When, for whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Now, um, for those of you who are familiar with the process of translation, there are certain words that oftentimes theologians will argue or discuss in regards to what is the right word in English or whatever language you're translating to is. Reassure is one of those words. So in verse 19, it says that by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. But there are certain theologians, uh, the, the new uh, English translation is another translation of the Bible. It actually has uh, a different word, and many theologians agree. And I think, I think it might be accurate. I'm not going to go into the detail why, but I think the right translation for that original Greek is actually convince. And let me read to you what that would sound like. It would say this. By this, we shall know by this, speaking of loving one another, by this, we shall know that we are of the truth and will convince our heart before him. You see, it's not natural to love by sacrificing what we have. It's unnatural. Even when we have the means, and we have much. It is unnatural. There is an innate self-centeredness that exists in each, and, <coughs> excuse me, in each and every one of us. There is that aspect. You may not recognize it in yourself, or you may. Others will probably say, no, no, Joanne, no. She is absolutely giving and would never, ever have a self-centered bone in her body. While Peter might say, uh-huh. Yeah, absolutely. We might not recognize it. We might have hidden it within ourselves. It is there. It is in me. Absolutely within me. You see, the decision to follow God, the choice to allow the Spirit to guide me, the desire to live a righteous life like Jesus Christ, it requires convincing on my part. It requires effort on our part. And in verse 20, the Bible points out that the natural human condition is to fight against this life of righteousness we are called to live. So, so it says, for whenever our heart condemns us, not if our heart condemns us, but when our heart condemns us, because we're going to fail. We're going to become self-centered. We will not be righteous. We will not be generous. We will not be compassionate. Thank God God is not like that. Thank God that his heart is greater than ours. He is not like us. He is greater. He is perfectly loving. He is perfectly generous. He is perfectly compassionate. more than I, we, will ever be. And this is the source that we are called to lean on so that we don't allow our own selfish, own selfish desires to drive us to ignore the needs of those around us. 
I realize that this is a very, for some, a very simplistic sermon. Be nice is basically what it could be possibly summed up to. But I, I, I want you to understand something. Being nice is not innate. Being good is not natural. It requires something so much greater than us to do. During this time between the resurrection and the return of our Savior, the children of God are called to be righteous. And I know that we can become righteous because and only because of the transformative work that's happening within us. And this transformative work that happens within us, it includes us. It includes our effort. It includes our convincing. It includes our participation. I want to end with just one thought, one final thought. My wife and I love this church. The people here are amazing. Christian or not, the men and women that we have come to know and come to love at this place, on the surface, I would call righteous. I would not only, only call you the children of God, I would call you the righteous children of God. But if you are showing evidence of God's good grace and mercy without God, it's not going to last. I know that I personally am a horrible, horrible person. I am self-centered and I am selfish. And I beg God on my knees every day, don't let my sinfulness overpower your mercy and your spirit's work within me. I'm going to ask that you consider that same prayer. If you are counted among the beloved of God, Lean on him to continue to strive for righteousness. If you are not counted among the beloved of God, I beg you to consider why. Why not? Because the righteousness that you show is a beautiful thing to see, but it will not last without God's power within you. Will you join with me in prayer right now?